I know we're not supposed to be jealous, but sometimes I'm a little jealous over the seraphim who stand before God and just sing for eternity, holy, holy, holy. What it would be like if we stood before God and just sang, great are you, Lord, for eternity. Hmm. One day, right? One day, we get to praise him for eternity. Go ahead and start the video, please. Historical figure? I don't know. I think he was just a person. I don't know. Just a normal person like us. He was a selfless person. I have no clue. He was a man. I think he was marketing genius because he got people to believe him. I don't. I don't think he's the son of God. I don't believe that at all. If David Copperfield was in the day of Jesus, he would be Jesus. I'm pretty sure he existed. Like I'm not gonna say that he didn't exist. He was God's son, but so was Gandhi, and so was Muhammad, and so was you know. We're all God's children. Jesus is someone I pray to. Well, Jesus is my Lord and Savior. Um, and he, to me, is the like symbol of just ultimate forgiveness and ultimate love. He's sort of that like constant figure in my life. Jesus is also Isa in Arabic, and he was a messenger as well. He was just extremely enlightened, like religiously and morally. He was somebody that um, just tried to um, impart wisdom on others and um, make the world a better place. I think he saw something that a lot of people didn't see and still don't see in others. And I, I think that's just a lot of love and, and hope. Jesus sort of seemed like an ominous uh, figure. You know, he just, he, he was God and it was hard to relate to him. But I think as I've grown in my faith a lot, I've really started to see Jesus as my closest friend. So who is Jesus? Tonight, we're going to listen in on a conversation between a man and Jesus. And like these people on the street in New York City, this man was struggling to know who Jesus was. And maybe perhaps some of you are as well. So tonight, we're going to look at John chapter 3, verses 1 through 21. And the title of the sermon is Nick at Night. Not Nickelodeon, but Nicodemus. Nick at night, and in this passage, we're going to see Christ is going to reveal his purpose here on earth. And the big idea that I want to leave you with tonight is really simple. God loved, God saved, God gave. It's the gospel message right now in a nutshell. Luther in 1534 said that this passage that we're going to study tonight he said this, this is one of the most magnificent passages to be found in the entire New Testament. And were it possible, worthy to be inscribed with golden letters into our hearts. Every Christian ought to learn this comforting text by heart and repeat it every day so that the words might become second nature to us and their meaning might become ever clearer. For they are the kind of words that can gladden a sorrowful heart and enliven a person who has lost all hope of life if he would but accept them in faith. High praise for 21 verses, right? But we're going to see why Luther tonight, why he said these are the best passages in the New Testament, and why he said that they deserve to be inscribed in our hearts in gold. 
It is from this passage that we get the concept of being born again. And it links together what John the Baptist said in 133, John chapter 1, verse 33, that Jesus is the Lamb of God, and I am baptizing in water, but he's going to baptize in spirit. And it links that passage with Acts chapter 2, the Holy Spirit infilling the disciples on Pentecost to be born again. We're going to see what that means. And in doing so, we're going to see just in this short conversation. I know sometimes we all feel like if I could just be a fly on the wall in certain conversations, right? You always want to know what people are talking about. and Just be that fly on the wall. Well, tonight we get to see that, this, this discussion between Nicodemus and Jesus. And from this passage, we're going to see that Jesus is going to upend the entire Jewish thought process. And we're going to see that his purpose is revealed. We're going to see that he's going to raise Jewish thought using Ezekiel passage we read earlier in 36. He's going to redefine Jewish stories, such as the one we saw in Numbers 21. And then we're going to see that Jesus is, going to hear, is here to rescue both Jews and non-Jews. Let me read the passage together. Starting in verse 1, chapter 3. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher to come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. And Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? And Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear it sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born in the Spirit. Nicodemus said to him, How can these things be? And Jesus answered him, Are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If, you have, if I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you of heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest the works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God." May God bless the reading of his word. So start off with, who is this character? Who is Nick? Who is Nicodemus? 
Despite how he's portrayed in some movies and things like that, we actually know very little about him. He's only found here in John's Gospel, nowhere else in the New Testament. And he's only found in three chapters, here in chapter 3, in chapter 7, and later in chapter 19. Um, we do have some Jewish genealogy that says that, um, that between uh, about 200 B.C. to about 200 A.D., there were only three people in the Jewish, uh, Jewish lineage that were named Nicodemus. And all three of them came from the same family, the Gurion family, who were very wealthy. Um, they were all upper-class Pharisees and in uh, social class and so forth. So one of these could be Nicodemus. We know that he is wealthy, right? We know in chapter 19 he comes and uh, he gives 75 to 100 pounds of myrrh and aloe at Jesus' burial, which in today's uh, money is about $300,000. Okay? It's about the size of a hay bale of aloe and myrrh that he used. I mean, he, he was wealthy and he had that social status and that he was willing to do that for Jesus. We know somewhere else in the Bible that he was not only a Pharisee, that was shown here, but later in chapter 7, it shows he's a member of the Sanhedrin, the member of the 70 that ruled the Jewish sect. And the question always is, is you know, after this discussion with Jesus, does, does Nicodemus become a believer? Um, we don't know for certain, uh, but we do know in chapter 7 that he speaks up for Jesus, saying that you know, this trial that we're doing on Jesus, it's not right. Jesus needs to speak for himself. And then in chapter 19, we see them, he, he comes and partners with Joseph Arimathea, right? And helps bury Jesus because of who Jesus was. He gives him a royal barrier, burial. He was in a rich man's tomb with a royal amount of myrrh and, and aloe for his, for his burial. So he has this royal burial. So some would say you can see the progression of Nicodemus that, yes, he, was, he finally believed and and then at the very end, he said, okay, Jesus is my Savior. He's, he's died, and I'm going to you know, show my belief by giving him this burial. We don't know for sure, though. And then we see him coming at night. And there's lots of myths and things about why he came at night. We don't know why he came at night, right? There's many possibilities. Um, remember, this is right after Jesus is cleansing the temple and doing these other signs. And so maybe he's just curious. Right? He's seeking Jesus out and saying, yeah, who are you? <laughs> you're doing these things, right? You sit there and make a whip, and you get us all out of the temple grounds, and, and you're doing all these signs. Who in the world are you? Or maybe it was some sort of immediacy, because you know, as being part of the Sanhedrin, he was in charge of making sure that were, there were no heresies going on, right? So he said, I, I need to go see this man that's doing all this and upending things, and creating all this turmoil. Or maybe just because this is social and political, religious class, he just didn't want to be seen, and so he goes at night. Or maybe this was just the only time Jesus was not surrounded by crowds. Okay. Could have been any one of those things or a combination. We just don't know. All we know that he's a Pharisee, and he, we know he's zealous for the Lord because he recognizes that Jesus could only do these things because he is from God, or because God is empowering him. John 1.9 reminded us that Jesus is light. And here we have this man, Nicodemus, who's coming at night. He's in spiritual darkness, and he's drawn to Jesus like a moth to the light, right? Jesus is the light. Nicodemus is drawn to him. Don't know what the motivation of the heart is, but he's there. He's coming to Jesus in the middle of the night. 
and then we get to listen to this conversation. That is just going to entirely change the entire Jewish thought process. So when I say that Jesus raises Jewish thought, I don't mean raises or lifted up. I mean raises, R-A-Z-E, that he completely destroys, completely destroys all Jewish thought and philosophy. So to understand this patches, we need to put on our Yiddish glasses, okay? And we're going to look through things through the Jewish lens as we look at this conversation. Because it is a Jewish rabbi, Jesus, talking to another Jewish rabbi, a Pharisee. And there are certain things inherent in that discussion uh, that we as Gentiles may not realize, but Nicodemus did, and so did Jesus. So we're going to bring that out to light tonight and see what Jesus is really doing here. So the first thing you see in verse 3, you see the the discussion here, Jesus said, it's not about my racial identity, your racial identity, Nicodemus. It's about the Redeemer incarnate. See, in verses 1 through 3, we see that Nicodemus is a ruler. He's a Jew. He's a Pharisee of Pharisees. He recognizes that Jesus must be some teacher from God. But Jesus says in verse 3, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Now, this born again has two connotations in the Greek. Um, one is time, like it's born again and again and again and again, or one location, born from above. And I think John is using both of these, right? That you're born again because you're becoming a new creation, and you're born from above in the Spirit. I think he's intentionally using those two words together. But what Jesus says in verse 3 shatters Nicodemus' mind and all that he had believed in. Well, it was taught widely among the Jews that if you descended from Abraham, you're going to heaven. That's all that is needed, just your ethnicity. And Jews today have extensive genealogies all the way through history. So everybody probably has heard of a Katz Deli, right, in New York City. That was Deli there, formed in 1988. Uh, some of us know have a friend whose last name is Katz. The Katz Jewish family can trace their lineage all the way back to Aaron. They are the priestly line. Why do they trace certain things back? Because they want to be assured that they can trace things back to Aaron and Abraham and so forth. Because they are assured heaven, right, if you're a Jew. Gives you a little understanding when we get to chapter 4 about why Jews were against Samaritans, right? The half-breeds, right? Because they could not enter heaven. In fact, some rabbis at this time, and even nowadays, will teach that Abraham stands watch. He's standing watch at the gate of hell, just to make sure that none of the descendants accidentally fall in. And the Talmud, which is the collection of Jewish rabbi discussions back and forth, state that Abraham periodically visits hell and pulls out any Jews who accidentally fell in. That's how deeply ingrained this ethnic process worked with the Jews, that they were entitled because of their ethnicity to go to heaven. And Jesus is saying, nope, <laughs> you've got to be born again. See, most of the Jews at that time were looking for the Messiah to bring in a new world, right? In which Israel and the Jewish people were the preeminent people. You can see them all being puffed up, right? We are Jews. We are God's people. We are preeminent in God's new world. Jesus is coming and saying, no, I'm coming to bring new life. And I'm the one who's preeminent, not you. 
That's what the Messiah does. See, we aren't children of God by blood or marriage or legal adoption or any other human decision. John chapter 1 told us that in verses 12 through 13, if we remember. It said the following, But all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. Belief in his name. That's what's required. And Jesus is saying, Nicodemus, you're not part of me. We're part of being a Christian. We're going to heaven just because you're Jewish. It's not about your racial identity. It's about the incarnate Redeemer. Now, can you imagine Nicodemus, right? Thinking about this, like, this, that's against everything that he's learned, right? Everything that he even teaches. And we get the verse 4 and 6, and we see that Jesus tells him, Nicodemus, let me go further. It's not about rebirth. I mean, Israel, it's about rebirth, but it's not about reformation. The Jews wanted reformation and thought. They wanted people to be reformed. And Jesus said, no, I don't want you to just renew your mind. I want you to renew your whole identity. You to be reborn into a new creation. The Old Testament is replete with verses that talk about the new covenant. And these, these passages, like the one we read in Ezekiel earlier this evening, make three promises to Israel. One, the gathering of Israel will come together. I will take you from the nations and bring you from all the countries and bring you together. So he would gather Israel. Number two, he would cleanse and create a spiritual transformation with God's people. And three, the reign of Messiah over Israel and the whole world will occur. The Jews were waiting for those three things because those three promises are throughout the Old Testament. And that's what the Pharisees are, are looking for. Now, at this time of the day, um, in the first century, the Jewish thought was that the first two things already occurred, that God had brought already the people back from captivity from Babylon. Okay, So he had restored Israel. He brought them back together. So check box number one. And the Pharisees thought that the spiritual movement had already occurred as well because, well, they're the Pharisees. Right? They've been spiritually enlightened. They're, they're reformed. They've had been transformed spiritually. And so check box number two. All they're waiting for is the Messiah. And Jesus is saying no in verse 5. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. For Nicodemus, the first two things are already occurred, that if the Messiah came, then he could enter the kingdom of God. And Jesus is saying no. You've got to be reborn. This is radical conversion, right? Rebirth, a new creation, not reformation of mind and thought, a new creation under God. And we see this term water and spirit. And there are four main views about what is meant by this, right? One of which is baptism of water by John the Baptist and spirit from Jesus. We know that can't be the true, right? Because, well, John the Baptist wasn't here tonight, was he? <laughs> right? John the Baptist wasn't here baptizing Tabor. His dad was. Okay? So it can't mean that. Maybe it was, maybe the water means Christian baptism and then we get Spiritual regeneration. Acts 2.38 tells us that's not true. Or maybe it's a natural birth and spiritual regeneration. Pointing back to verse 6, when Nicodemus is saying, can I be born again from my mother's womb? And that's not what Jesus is talking about either. He's talking about spiritual regeneration or rebirth alone. He's pointing back to Ezekiel chapter 36, 
and pointing back to Genesis chapter 1, verse 2. And Nicodemus would have realized that in his Pharisaic mind. When you say the words water and spirit together, he automatically would go to Genesis chapter 1, verse 2. The spirit hovered over the water. And what was God doing there? Making a new creation. What was he doing in verse 36? He was giving water and spirit. He was doing purification and regeneration together. A new creation. That's what Nicodemus would have realized was happening, what Jesus was telling him to do, that this, this is what's happening. And this term, we, this water and spirit, we do this nowadays. It's a fancy grammatical word that I won't tell you, but it means in Greek, one for two. And so water and spirit are talking about the same thing. Uh, Shakespeare did this a lot in his poetry, right? He, he's known for doing that. Uh, we do it today when we say, my boys are rough and tough, okay? And, and they are. Okay, um, that, those both words mean the same thing. Two words for one description. Or when we in our Christianese say, let's pray and ask God. Well, they're the same thing. I'm communicating with God, right? Two for one. Well, that's what Jesus is doing here with water and spirit. It's pointing to our spiritual regeneration, our rebirth. So the best way to really to read this passage is through this Jewish mindset. And Nicodemus realized that, Right? He understands Jewish purification, and Jewish purification had two forms, right? It had just washing of the hands with a cup of water. We saw that in Leviticus when we studied it together. It also has complete immersion, like we do with baptism, right? Completely immerse yourself and come up purified. Jesus is telling Nicodemus, you got to be reborn completely, a new creation, And we see that in Titus chapter 3, verse 5. It says, He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration, water, and renewal of the Holy Spirit. Now think about Nicodemus' mind. First, Jesus told him, you're not going to heaven because just because you're a Jew. Ethnicity doesn't matter. Just because you're from the line of Abraham means nothing to me. Two, just because you're a Pharisee, enlightened and with the Old Testament and understanding the passages, doesn't mean anything to me. I want you to be reborn, not just transformed. And Nicodemus is confused, right? You see that in verse 9. How can these things be? <laughs> right? And what God is calling him to in verses 7 and 8 here is response rather than realization. He tells Nicodemus what? Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. Because Nicodemus is just like marveling what Jesus is saying. What does all this mean? And Jesus said, don't marvel about it, right? You don't know what happens with the wind. So how can you understand about the Spirit? I want you to just respond in faith, not try to figure it out. You don't have to understand everything. At some point, you know, I can understand Scripture, right? But at some point, I have to take a... Leap of faith, right? And that's what he's asking Nicodemus to do, to take that leap of faith. You thought I was going to fall, didn't you? (laughs) Got everybody's attention? Good. So he takes a leap of faith. That's what he's asking him to do. You can't understand everything, Nicodemus. I know you're a Pharisee. You're a member of the Sanhedrin. You know the Old Testament well, but you don't know well as you think you do. (laughs) Right? You need to respond, not try to understand everything. response rather than understanding. 
So we see here just in this first, these first few views of verses that he has raised Jewish thought. He said, Redeemer incarnate rather than racial identity, rebirth uh, rather than reformation, response rather than realization. But he's not done dismantling Nicodemus' world. Not in a long shot. Nicodemus by this point is like, why did I show up? <laughs> he's saying everything I've done in life is wrong. Jesus is not done with him. In verses 9 through 15, he's going to redefine Jewish stories and really help Nicodemus understand once and for all what these stories meant. Because he knows Nicodemus is confused, so he's going to go back to first principles. I'm going to go back to a story, Nicodemus, that you have known since childhood. How can these things be in verse 9? Jesus says, are you really a teacher of Israel? Yet you do not understand what I'm talking about? Did Jesus have a sense of humor? Yes. Right? And then he says, truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen. And he goes on this passage of telling him about Moses and the serpent back in Numbers chapter 21. This is a story that Nicodemus would have been told from a boy that he would have known before he turned to age 13. It would be something that he is taught over and over in the temple. But he's confused, right? He can't correct his thinking. Jesus has just dismantled everything so far, and he's like, I can't understand what, what you're talking about. What does this spiritual transformation mean? And Jesus said, well, I know you're confused, but you should be familiar with the Old Testament, so let's go back to a story you understand. And one commentator said, Nicodemus at this point has failed to grasp the teaching about the new birth when it was presented to, to him in terms that are drawn from Ezekiel's prophecy that we read together. Now it's presented to him a means of an object lesson from a story which he had been familiar with. So we read the passage earlier. People are, of Israel are complaining, right? Why did we leave Egypt? We're just going around in the desert. It's hot out here. I'm thirsty. All I have to eat is this manna that you gave us. Manna for breakfast, manna for lunch, manna for dinner. And they start complaining. And God judges them for their complaint, right? And sends these fiery serpents to bite them, and they die. He also gives them a way to repent. Tells Moses to make this scepter, this bronze scepter with a serpent on it, and anybody who looks at it after they've been bit, they'll live. Makes no sense, right? But God, okay? <laughs> Love those words. So we, we always think of serpents as being evil, right? Many of you don't like snakes, right? Why? Because we've been ingrained, ingrained from the beginning of the Scripture that they're evil, right? But here in, in, in this passage and in Numbers 21, they're made of bronze. It's made of bronze, right? Bronze is made with fire, and, so, and that's always the element of judgment. So this is not a serpent of sin. It's a serpent of judgment. God is judging his people. The bronze serpent speaks of sin, but it's sin that is judged. What did the people sin against? Contentment against God, right? They were just bellyaching. They weren't content that God was feeding them every day, that he was taking care of them, right? He literally had just given water out of a rock just before this. He is feeding them manna, but yet they're complaining. So he judges them. 
The bronze serpent is a picture of sin judged and dealt with. And notice what the people were saved by doing, right? All they had to do was what? Look at it. They didn't do anything else. They just had to look towards that bronze element. They had to trust that something was going to happen, that God was going to save them if they just looked at it. They had to have that, what? That faith. There's nothing they could do, right? They couldn't build a little border and keep themselves away from snakes. They couldn't go kill the snakes, right? All they had to do was look at that bronze serpent on the pole and believe. Isaiah 45, 22 comes to mind. Look to me and be saved, all you ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. God asks us to do the same thing, right? Jesus took our sin and it was lifted up and bore on the cross. Jesus is telling Nicodemus, that story, yes, it happened to Moses and Israel, but it's really talking about, it's foreshadowing what's going to happen to me. I am going to be lifted up, sin judged. Your sin, Nicodemus, my sin, Charles, your sin out there. And it will be judged. He's lifted up in crucifixion, lifted up in his ascension. So must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him shall have eternal life. When they looked at the serpent on the bronze, they lived, right? If you look up to Jesus, you're going to have eternal life, right? At this point, can you imagine Nicodemus? Like, I thought I understood that story. <laughs> but now you're telling me, no, I didn't understand it. You're, you're, my complete Jewish thought was wrong, and now my understanding of this Old Testament passage is wrong. And Jesus says, let me go one further. I'm not done with you, Nicodemus. Your understanding of my purpose, the purpose of the Messiah, is all wrong. We see that in verses 16 through 21. And we come to the verse we all know, John 3, 16. Right? We all can quote it just like that, without even thinking about it. And that's our problem. We don't think about it anymore. This passage in 16 through 21 tells us that Jesus rescues Jews and non-Jews. It's not exclusive to just Nicodemus and the Pharisees. It's for Jews and Gentiles. There's 31,102 verses in the Bible. But most people know John 3.16 is the most widely used verse for evangelism. Why? Because it tells us what? God loved, God gave, and God saved. Great t-shirt, right? It's the gospel in a nutshell. God loved. God gave. And God saved. What Jesus told Nicodemus in verse 7, that you must be born again, refuted the popular Jewish idea regarding the way to salvation. Now he's going to refute the popular Jewish idea regarding the scope of salvation. God so loved, you finish, the world, right? Not just God so loved the Jews. Or God so loved the elite Jews, i.e. the Pharisees, right? God so loved the world. The Jews of that day rarely thought that God loved the world. Many of them thought that God only loved Israel. So this universal thought that Jesus is for everyone, 
is completely revolutionary. They failed to understand the Old Testament passages that said that God would save both Jews and Gentiles, and they are in there. God said, I am going to come to save the nations. Israel, I'm just using you as a word picture. So that may come the saving grace of Jesus Christ. You're just a word picture. You're not just exclusive. I'm here to save the world. And so we get to John 3, 16. He gave his only son. God's gift, born in love. Nothing I or you have done. God's love just didn't feel the plight of the fallen world. It did something about it. Yes, he was empathetic. Oh, my people are fallen. They're under this curse. He just didn't stop there. Let them die in their misery. No, he did something about it. I want to give my son, my only son. Whoever believes in him, the recipient of God's love, is whosoever encompasses everybody. There's a fancy Greek word for that, and it means all. (laughs) Okay? Everyone who believes in him shall not perish. The intention of God's love is, is salvation, to save them from the penalty of sin, which we know is death, internal separation from him. And God said, I don't want anyone to perish, so I'm going to extend this gift of salvation. And if you receive that, you get what? The reward of salvation is eternal life. That's not only a time aspect that we, you know, we're outside of time, i.e. live forever, but it's the quality of life as well. We're in the presence of God. No more sin, no more pain, no more cancer, no more heart problems, nothing. No more curse, no more sin. In verses 17 through 21, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world. No, he sent him to save us the first time. When Jesus comes back, though, he comes back as judge. Verse 18, whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already. The reproach and result of sin. Now, I know there's a significant issue, right, with those who do not believe. Are we talking about people who never had the opportunity to hear the gospel? And that's an important question. And Paul addresses that in Romans 1 and 2. Okay? That's not what's being addressed here. Uh, Jesus is talking about individuals who have heard the gospel message from him. Uh, it's focused on those who encountered him there. The Pharisees, the Jewish leaders have heard his message. But what did they do? Verse 19, and this is the judgment. The light has come into the world. Jesus is here. And the people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. Jesus explained that the, what keeps people from faith and rescuing him is the darkness, is evil, their love for evil. They would love darkness rather than love of God. It's hard to wrap our minds around that, but such were some of we, right? We were there. We, I, I love my sin more than I love God until God broke me of that. And I responded to to turn away from that. People who are against Christianity, right? Why are they against Christianity? Because they love sin, right? 
and they don't want to face it. They want to face a God who would judge them. Jesus, with a short conversation with Nicodemus at night, dismantled completely Jewish thought and all human philosophies. It's a radical yet simple message. God loved, God gave, God saved. It's simple to understand. Children can understand it. Senior saints can understand it. But it's completely radical, right? It's a radical to Jewish thought then. It's radical to humanity now. And Christ's purpose is revealed in this conversation. He is the Messiah, the Savior for everyone. And we are made a new creation if we believe in him. And I see, as I prayed through this this week, um, I see three applications for us at the church. And these applications are each based on the person in the day's passage. One on John, based on John, the author. One based on Nicodemus. And one based on Jesus. So the one based on John first. You saw in this video, people in the streets of New York City were asked who Jesus was. And obviously, incorrect responses, right? They have no idea who Jesus was. My question to you is, could you explain that to them? Could you, can you explain who Jesus is? Can you proclaim the gospel message? Can you articulate the gospel message? We are commanded to, right? We are commanded to verbally share it. That's what evangelism is. Evangel means good, sharing the good news. We're Yes, we're supposed to have a life that has a wonderful testimony of Jesus Christ, right? Our life is supposed to be a sweet aroma to God. But lifestyle evangelism, whatever that term means, is not enough, right? God says, I want you to verbally share the gospel message. So can you articulate to those people in New York City? Can you share the gospel message? Can you share the good news? One verse to start with maybe is John 3, 16, really understanding what that verse is talking about. Or, I'm going to break a rule. Every preacher is told not to have the people turn to another passage. But I'm going to break the rule because my preaching professor is not here. So I'm going to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 3 through 6. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 3 through 6. This is another passage where the gospel message is presented very succinctly. Paul says, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to twelve, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, and then all the apostles, and so forth. Here's the message, right? Jesus died, he was buried, and he was resurrected. And you see here, Paul is saying that he, he received the gospel, right? He received it directly from Jesus. And then he's passing it on, what we are called to do in Great Commission, right? As you go, right? Share the gospel message. And God gave us the message knowing that our human minds would need proof, right? He made us. He knows how our minds work. It was like, prove you're resurrected. Okay, let me, let me uh, appear to the disciples, they're a little biased, right? Because they're in this Jesus movement. They say, well, then let me appear to 500 people, right? And so on and so on. He provided the proof, the evidence. 
that he was buried, and then he is resurrected. What Jesus is trying to tell Nicodemus here and tell us is that the Bible, this is the gospel, right? The theme of the entire Bible is the salvation of mankind through Jesus Christ, from Genesis 1 to the end of Revelation. And Jesus asks us, why do you marvel? I've told you the story. So, can you share the gospel message? In the beginning, God created the world. It was perfect without sin. Then sin entered the world, right? Adam and Eve sinned against God. And that caused a curse against man and against his creation. Man is just not now affecting climate change, right? Man did that back in Genesis chapter 3, right? When the creation was cursed. And it groans for the second coming of Christ, just like we do. Sin entered the world when the penalty of that sin is death. Adam and Eve, before the fall, walked in the Garden of Eden with God and had discussions with him. How would you like to do that? Just walking around the path, talking to God. God, why'd you make the giraffe that way? You know, things like that, right? One day, when God calls us home, we'll be able to do that again. We'll be able to walk with our Savior and our brother, Jesus Christ, and have a conversation. God, why'd you make me bald? You know, yeah. And he's going to say, did it matter? And I said, no, not really, right? Not going to have those discussions, right? They're going to be meaningless the time we see Jesus face to face. But it's fun to think about things now, right? In our sin nature, all we want is justice, right? Justice for ourselves. But if God gave us that justice, we just die, <laughs> right? But God said, I'm not going to give you what you deserve. I'm going to send you my son. And Jesus came and lived a sinless life and died for me, for each one of you on the cross. And he was buried. But praise God, he was not left in the tomb. He's resurrected three days later. And he sits at the right hand of God the Father. And when we believe in him, he gives us a gift. We already have the gift of salvation, but he gives us a gift, his Holy Spirit, part of the Trinity, to live inside of us, to empower us, to teach us, to guide us. And then one day he's going to call us home. I am no longer separated from God because of my sin, because Jesus has taken that away. We have been justified. We are free of the penalty of sin. And right now, I'm free of the power of sin. I'm, I'm going through the process of sanctification, like you, those of you who have believed in Jesus Christ. And then one day, I'm going to be free of the presence of sin. I will have a glorified body. I look forward to that day. But can you share that gospel message with somebody? Second question, as I reflect on Nicodemus. I want to stick my finger in your lemonade on this one, right? I don't have any person in mind. I'm not trying to judge anybody at all. Um, but this is something that God has just put in my heart. If you, might, if you don't like what I'm going to say, you can talk to the chair of the complaint committee. It's the Holy Spirit, okay? Um, so my question is this. Are you a Christian or are you merely religious? Because Nicodemus was religious, right? 
But he was not a believer in Christ. He was not following him. He, was not, he did not know him. He did not abide in him. Now, we are in the Bible Belt. But we are surrounded by nominal Christians. And I don't even like that phrase, nominal, right? It doesn't mean anything. It's an oxymoron, right? You, you just can't be part of a Christian, right? You're either a new creation and obedient, or you're not. You know, God was digital before we were, right? You're either believer or unbeliever. You're either wheat or tares. You're sheep or goats. Unbeliever, believer. You're condemned to death or redeemed. That's all there is, black and white, to God. But let's just go with this nominal Christian theme, because you see it all in culture. The last Barna survey, which was done recently, said the vast majority of American adults, 69%, self-identify as Christian, but only 9% actually have a biblical worldview and practice that. That's a low number, right? They're actually practicing God's word or have that biblical view in mind. And we have other words for nominal Christians, right? Cultural Christians, right? Or cafeteria Christians, where we are kind of cherry-picking things that we like in the Bible and not others. Reminds me of, I look at our window, sometimes I see we have three types of woodpeckers out there, and they're pecking on different parts of the tree. Uh, They're pecking over here, pecking over here, and they're missing the whole fact that they got this entire tree that they own, right? Same thing with these cafeteria Christians, right? They pick and choose parts of the Bible that feel good and they like, and they forget Jesus, the tree of life, is standing right there in front of them, right? There's no need to cherry pick. You want the whole thing. We've heard the phrase Sunday morning Christians, or maybe you say Sunday evening Christians for our, our church, right? They only show up for, to worship on Sundays to check the box. They're not involved in Sunday school, not involved in fellowshipping, not involved in tithing or activities of the church, not praying. They just come to service. And don't get me wrong, these things are not just good in themselves, right? We're not trying to create more a checklist, a checkbox of things to do. But these should be the natural overflow of abiding with Christ, right? I want to fellowship with you as a church because I love God. Therefore, I love you and I want to spend time with you. I tithe because not only God told me to in obedience, but I want to, right? I want to fuel what he's doing here. So I'm just going to say this. I'm going to get in my spiritual soapbox a second. I know we meet at 3.30 for Sunday school, but our adult Sunday school class, which goes from college to senior saints and adults, it should be having a space issue. We should have more derrieres and chairs right now. And we don't. The vision of the elder team is that we have two or three adult Sunday school classes going on simultaneously. Not because we're legalistic, or not because we're trying to meet some metric, but we're trying to meet the need that you want to hunger to be with one another and to grow in Christ with one another. That's the vision. Back to nominal Christians. They're churchgoers, right? But they're really just a church membership, right? They, they wear a label. Jesus is not into labels, right? <laughs> At all. We just don't want to be Christian in name only. And Jesus dealt with this already in Revelation chapter 3, talking about the church in Sardis. He writes, To the angel of the church in Sardis, These are the words of him who holds the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. 
I know your deeds. You have a reputation of being alive, but you are dead. You wear the label of being a Christian, but you're really dead. You're not alive in me. Nominal faith is not faith, right? That's not what God wants. Our faith is live and living, life-giving. Matthew 7, 21 to 23 is one of the saddest and sobering verses to me as I think about people around me, people I've known that said they were Christian. The verse says this, Matthew chapter 7, 21 through 23. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I would declare to them, I never knew you. Apart from me, you workers of lawlessness. It's not about membership, but the Messiah who saves you. It's not about a name tag. It's about the name above all names, the King of Jesus. So how do we escape this nominalism? As I thought about it, I think there's two types of nominal Christians. There's ones that have accepted Jesus as their Savior, but they're not living that he's Lord of their life. And you need to repent of that, repent of that sin, and abide in him, and obey, and live with him. And then there are those that Jesus is not their Savior. They're just plain church, right? They need to turn away from sin and follow God. He needs to be their Lord and Savior. Confess with our mouth their sin and turn to him. Our church mission is, right? You all know it. Unifying, growing, and serving others for the purpose of reclaiming Christ. Our church mission is not creating nominal Christians. We are not growing a Sardis church full of dead people. That is not our mission. So tonight, if Jesus is not your Savior, turn from your sin and ask Him to be your Savior. If He is your Savior, but you're not living your life that He is your Lord, repent of that and let Him be Lord of your life completely. Last application as I look at Jesus. My question to you is, are you ready? Are you ready for a movement of God? Are you ready to respond to his will? This was nighttime when Nicodemus came. But Jesus didn't say, you know, Nick, I'm tired. Why are you coming bothering me? I just drove you all out of the temple, but you're here at my doorstep at night. Just go away. Jesus didn't do that. He was ready to do God's will. He was ready to do his father's will. Are you ready for God, what, what God wants to do through you in this church? Do you, ex, do you have that expectant faith? I do. I sense God is up to something. Right? We just witnessed one baptism, and we have another one I know in March. That's two. Last year, we had zero. God is up to something, right? I've heard several of you share your stories of you sharing the gospel with people, and that's exciting. It shall continue, right? God is up to something. I don't know what he's up to. I just know it is. It's not a bad enchilada I ate last night. I just know God is up to something, okay? But are you ready? Do you have that expectant faith? 
If I was in Narnia, I would say Aslan is on the move, right? God is here among us, and he's working. And it's not just called your elder team. We are only here as facilitators of the Holy Spirit. Holy, this is the Holy Spirit's church, right? It's the one that's actively moving here. We just help facilitate that activity. Revival of Brian, revival of Beeson Street, revival of this church. It begins where you're sitting. Personal revival. It begins with me. It begins with each one of you. So I'm going to ask you to search your heart and remove anything that is quenching the spirit. Are you ready? Is there anything separating you from God? Are you actually praying for this church? Are you expectant of what he's going to be doing? I am. I want you to be as well. So it's church, it's time to, be, to do business with God. I've called us, including me, to consider four things tonight in these applications. First, are you prepared to share a gospel message? If not, ask God to give you the boldness to speak about that, about what you love most. Ask God to give you the hunger to memorize scripture so you're prepared to share those verses. Ask God to give you gospel opportunities. If you ask him, he will answer. Second, is Jesus your savior, but not Lord of your life? Then surrender authority to him tonight. Commit to abide with him fully, daily. Maybe commit to joining this church if he's calling you to an authentic relationship with a fellowship of believers. Third, is Jesus neither your Lord or Savior? Then tonight, he can be. It's time to stop playing the church game, right? It's time to start having peace in your life by having Jesus in your life. And there's no judgment for anybody here. It's, it's just the Holy Spirit prodding you, right? We all had to be there, those who have believed Jesus as our Lord and Savior. I had to be broken of my sin. Fourth question, are you ready for what God wants us to do in Living Hope, Brian? Are you ready for how he will use you in this life and mission of the church? Ask God to remove any impediments to move the Holy Spirit from your life. Be empowered with a gift he has given you. Commit to pray for this church daily. Spend time with God. So God is here among us. Plead with him at your seat. Here at the altar, prayer room is open with Frank and Shirley. I'm going to stay down here during the first song if anybody wants prayer. But do business with God. That's what this place is for. It's a transaction house that we do business with God. Like Nicodemus, we've heard the word of God. It's time to respond to him. God loved. God gave. God saved.